0: On this episode, we discuss Atari Hotels, the Switch Pro maybe not being so great, an abort test being a success, and Microsoft botches the last Windows 7 update. Shocking. Plus, I also give an extensive rundown of a bunch of updates that I've done to my smart home. This and more in this week's show.
1: I'm SP from Better Podcasting, a show dedicated to help make your podcast better and it is part of the Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other insightful and wonderful geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com.
2: This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Steven, Chris, and SP.
0: Welcome to an all-new episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. After a week away, I am Stephen Jodhry, and I am pleased to say that Chris Farrell's here again this week. I tried to stream last week.
3: No one was here, so I just
1: put out a black screen, and I called up my own episode of GunnaGeek.
0: <laughs> and also, Espy is here. Hey, SB.
1: I wanted to stream, but nobody wanted to stream with me, so I didn't stream, and I think it was actually a plot against me because that meant I was forced to watch The Bachelor.
0: (laughs) Okay, so full disclosure on this here, by the way. So uh, last week, I got feeling terrible. Like, I woke up at, like, 2 in the morning between uh, Sunday to Monday, And I I ended up staying up. Every time I went to lay down, I I felt like absolutely horrendous. And the
1: room was spinning. The room
0: was spinning. And Mm -hmm. you just put a foot down on the ground. You'll be okay. Yeah, no, I felt terrible. So I actually I I ended up just giving in because every time I laid down, I felt a thousand times worse. So I felt terrible as I caught up on a bunch of TV shows at two in the morning. And so I did that. But I just was feeling awful last week. And uh, Chris and SP, They were uh, willing to actually do this show without me, but because of some circumstances, just I'll I'll save you the the mumbo jumbo with editing and things like that. We decided it was best just to forfeit uh, last week, Uh, but I wanted to give a shout out and a thanks to both of you and say thank you very much for supporting and being willing to go without me. I do appreciate that. And also uh, extra thanks for making sure that my distance between Chris and my episode count didn't grow Mm -hmm. too far. (laughs) So enough mm-hmm. of that
3: mush. We're glad you're feeling better, Stephen. More importantly, SP after getting to watch the bachelor, are you prepared for your Starling Tribune replacement podcast? The bachelor talk with SP, the not bachelor.
1: No, no. I no, heard you I, were going to do a fact, solo recap. If I ever was anywhere near a bachelor podcast after last week, I am so far away. I'm like <laughs> a multiverse away from doing a bachelor podcast after well, last week my okay. god we're, that show is pitiful
3: we're gonna have a crisis and we're gonna fold you into earth bachelor where you can do the oh official podcast of the uh, bachelor we'll get you to co-host it with a former bachelor bachelor uh, what's the one that does uh football games you can do it with that guy and you guys can just recap what's going on it sounds like the perfect show for you sp i know you're firmly in touch with what the youth's like in america
1: there's already a host of podcasts on the Bachelor. Matter Effect. The big daddy of them, by the way, is Reality Steve. So if you want to know how screwed up reality TV really is, go check out Reality Steve. I'm not getting paid a cent for this, but I did have some communications back and forth with him a few years ago, and I wanted to know if what he was talking about was real. It is. And that just makes me really sad for the state of reality TV.
0: By the way, SP right now, he said, if you want to see how screwed up it is, you want to see reality, Steve. I just want to go ahead and say right now that often the phrase is said, if you want to see something screwed up, go see Steve, because I get that a lot myself. Hmm. Just general, general point right there. There doesn't need to be context to it.
3: I'm getting the potential (laughs) here for a whole spinoff of shows. We know Suncast is a big fan of Big Brother. We can have him host a Big Brother show. SP, we know bachelor as much as you might not like it you're a resident expert so you've got to cover the bachelor and i'll take uh what's some crappy reality show i watch below deck that's my crap reality show i will host the below deck show steven what crappy reality show are you going to cover for the <laughs> gonna reality tv show network i lost it
0: you know you already gave away, gave away big Brother, so i guess that's got to leave me with the uh, survivor so i, I gotta take go. survivors
1: there you go and you guys in the chat room, come join us. Let us know what you want to host. I wouldn't mind doing a Deadliest Catch podcast, but Ooh. I don't know how much longer that show is going to be on the air. Spoiler alert. They're going to catch some crabs this week.
0: Again, go see Steve uh, again.
3: I watch it too. I watch
1: it too. I'm just harassing. I like Deadly Catch. I mean, they lost another boat this year. That's two boats in two years. Yeah, that's scary. It is. And there is there is loss of life. Uh, associated with it so it is there is reality there The the stories the the fights and everything that's that's produced but the yes. the actual crab catching is real
0: right on that note let's go ahead and talk what we talk on this show which is not a reality tv show but it is geeky news uh, chris looks very disappointed for the audio listener right now I, like I he wanted, looks he looks very want, disappointed <laughs>
3: I want to talk about moonshiners on the Discovery Channel and about how it's all got to be real that they brew moonshine on TV and don't get arrested. It's got (laughs) to be real. I'll take that podcast also, moonshiners, because I live in moonshine country. I live in Appalachia.
0: Okay, well, then if we're going to go and talk Discovery programming, I'll just go and say right now that I'm going to cover the Curiosity Daily podcast reality show. That's what I'm going to cover. So there you go. I understand it's a reality show. Steven's daily
3: recap is going to be longer than the actual show, is what we're finding out here. (laughs) You're going to follow around Ashley and Cody all day, (laughs) huh?
0: Before we do get to the news, uh, I should just specify right now that uh, if you didn't know that, Gunna Geek Network member, former guest of the show, Cody Goff. He does do a podcast called the Curiosity Daily Podcast. And uh, it was recently announced. I think it was before. I think it was like two weeks ago. So we haven't had a chance to talk about it on here. Long story short, uh, it was bought by the Discovery Corporation, Curiosity it was. And they made an announcement and things like that. So uh, he is now an official employee of the Discovery whatever network association group company thing. Can he get us Mike Rowe on this show? I was thinking about that. I think we need to get Mike Rowe on here. At, I think or, so too. Or we'll just make this a show talking about Mike Rowe. Gonna Mike I,
1: Rowe. I was Mike really Rowe's the voice. <laughs> the dude has an awesome voice. Right?
0: Yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about news and not micro news. This is all about hotels and a certain themed hotel that might be coming your way. Playboy, 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 Wait, what? (laughs) This announcement just came out, and it's that Atari is licensing their name to hotels because Atari has signed a contract that's going to see the Atari name used to help brand hotels across Marca. You're going to see the first location In Phoenix, and other locations are going to be Austin, Chicago, Denver, Las Vegas, San Francisco, San Jose, and Seattle. The main draw of this hotel theme is going to be like an esports studio sort of thing. There's no specific details released yet on what this themed hotel is going to be, but apparently the hotel will have a quote, Art Atari, see, I can't even say it because they're so irrelevant, Atari Gaming Playground, end quote. And essentially, some form of esports, like I mentioned, is going to be in there. And who knows what level of esports? But this is happening. There's going to be Atari-themed hotels across Marca. Chris Farrell, your look of disgust right now must mean you're very interested. So, so tell us when you're going to book this.
3: I mean, if this was the '80s, someone might care more. But it, like Albert says in the chat room, is Atari even still a thing? We've been making fun of them on this show lightly, but more of going, why are they doing this? Because remember, they're building their own like console game that's going to do throwbacks but is somehow magically going to do modern day games that's been delayed another, what, two or three months, so we don't know what's going on. I, I don't know that I would care about an Atari hotel. I mean, it might be a cool novelty and I guess if you're in eSports, the potential there for, if you're a traveling eSports team, maybe these cities are places where there's a lot of eSport tri- teams that come in and play, that might be a great place to have training and stuff or rooms pre-set up for you, but I I don't get the draw, and this is coming from someone who, through the late 80s and the 90s, played a lot of video games, and held the early 2000s, to be honest, but I I don't care. I think I'd rather go to the Taco Bell Hotel. That's a better story.
0: (laughs) You know, I have to admit, I kind of struggle to see the need to have a a gaming-themed hotel at all. Like, you get it when you have something that's like a bigger... Bigger sort of thing, but to have a gaming themed hotel, like, what's the point? Because gaming is something that you don't really generally go, unless you're a specific type of person or specific, you know, esports person or whatever. You don't you don't generally go and immerse yourself in something like Disneyland, right? You you don't go spend weeks on time enjoying gaming at a destination. So, I, I question this.
3: I guess it's a matter of what all are they presenting? Because I'll admit, a little bit of backstory, I go down YouTube rabbit holes all the time. One of the things that fascinates me is like Japan and China, the whole capsule hotel concept. Now I was watching one guy's YouTube channel. Can you remember who it is? He went to a a, uh, capsule hotel that was based around gaming. And by that, what was it? The lobby was full of gaming rigs, like Alienware machines that were fully specced out. That had, they had 12 machines locally networked with internet play. That had a huge catalog of games on it that you could go and play online. It was included as part of your price for admission. And then they also had like three different VR rigs set up that once you had bought your hotel room, you could play all these things. So I could see from that perspective where it might be interesting to play a few, a couple different games, try some stuff you wouldn't normally experience. But I don't know that it's appealing to a huge audience? Am I, am I off base with that?
0: You know, one of the things that's interesting in the chat, if you didn't know this, we do stream the show live on Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time at Geeks.Live. And in the chat, we have Dane that says, uh, might be good in Vegas. And one of the things that I think is interesting with this is I did mention actually that Vegas is in that list. And a couple of the articles that I first saw before I ended up looking a little more into it were actually specifically citing this as being as coming to Vegas. That was the spin on the headline. So maybe, maybe I guess in certain areas, I I don't know if I see a reason for this to be in Seattle, but I guess we'll see.
1: might be because there's a lot of gamers that are headquartered in the Seattle because of the, all the tech sector up there. Mm -hmm. It could be because, you know, Silicon Valley, same thing, or, I don't know, maybe another place that there's a lot of VR stuff, like maybe Atlanta or something like that. I could see where you'd want to do this, where there'd be either a big population base or a big base of people that inherently were classic gamers or combined together. There's a market for just about anything out there. The question is, is there enough market to sustain the business?
0: I guess when I look at this, like I feel like a Pokemon-themed hotel would do a heck of a lot better than an Atari-themed hotel. That's the sort of what I I look at with this.
3: Depends on where you are and what the theming is of it. But yes, to an extent, I do agree with you. But Pokemon's a bigger brand than Atari at this point in time. That's the thing you got to consider. You could arguably say, what if I had a Nintendo-themed hotel or an Atari-themed hotel next door to each other? Which one would I be more inclined to stay in? It would be Nintendo because to me in my current age and the current state of gaming, Nintendo is more relevant. That, that's the thing with Atari right now and why I'm kind of scratching my head a little bit is historically, Atari, ha- Atari excuse me, has a lot of back history behind them about why they were so dominant, some classic games. But when you talk about Atari in today's world, what do people think of? I mean, you might be able to get some nostalgia pulled off here, but I don't think it would be as interesting as like a Nintendo one or a Sony one with a PlayStation and its theming towards all those things. And I don't even understand some of their cities. Like, San Francisco makes sense. Seattle makes sense because big tech. San Jose, to I a lesser dis- extent, does.
0: I disagree. I don't think Seattle does make sense because big oh, tech. Dude, because there's so Atari- many
3: Atari people there still. Ah,
0: I don't see it. I, I see it more the, as a modern the, the, culture.
3: And the video game collector market and stuff like that is huge in Seattle right now. So, I mean, and it has been for ages. There's a huge retro gaming community in the seattle area so that one makes the most sense to me i bet you once one of these open and i'm gonna plug someone else's youtube channel here because i really like it there's a youtube channel called metal jesus rocks that's all about like his games that he collects and his gaming rooms and going on tours to japan to find stuff i guarantee you with him being in seattle as soon as an atari place opens there they're either (laughs) going to invite him to come in to do a video or he's going to do it because he and a great community in that area are super into historical gaming retro gaming.
0: All right. Well, I I can't argue your points, I guess. So I'll, I'll stand somewhat corrected, maybe. I don't know. Before everybody Ooh. sends hate mail. I don't know. I, I You have a hate mail sense, to but,
3: js at gunnageek.com. Don't forget.
0: But here's the thing. They say it's going to be themed. They don't say exactly what it is. I picture like when you go to check in, you're going to have to like actually either it'll be you will have to fight the space invaders like you have to be space invade play space invaders to get to your hotel room. If you fail, you don't get your hotel room. They still get your money. Or on the opposite, they'll assign hotel rooms via like a live Pong situation where you're going to bounce into a room randomly. I think that's how it's going to work.
3: I think what would be hilarious is uh, there's some arcade bars in the town I live in. and One of the things they have is a table talk Pong game, which is not like video game based. It's actually physical paddles and a physical ball that slides across the screen. They are totally going to make a room that is live action pong where it's two beds on either side of the room and a ball that bounces and you sit on the bed and control and go bong, bong and push things around the room. That would be cool. And I'm in if that's the case. You know,
0: we've all we've all been in hotel room where we've heard our hotel neighbors being very, very loud at night. This is going to be a a whole different type of loudness. Right? SB, <laughs> any final thoughts before we move on to the next news?
1: They probably went with the Atari because they could get the rights to it versus Sony or Microsoft or whoever out there. They probably just wanted too much money in order to do it. You have the gaming arcades, the classic gaming arcades, which are doing okay, but I just don't see them as a huge business. So will this succeed? I don't know. I don't think I would hope so, but I don't think they will.
0: All right, well, speaking of succeeding in gaming, uh, that's the question about this next news point because there's some interesting rumors coming out about the Switch Pro, right, Chris?
3: There are. So this is a rumor that keeps bubbling up. And before we start, you can't say that the Switch hasn't been a success. It's sold, what, 41 million systems worldwide compared to Microsoft's 40 million for the Xbox One. So the Switch, it's a big deal. I remember you could not find them on shelves for months at a time. One thing we've seen today, especially between Sony and Microsoft, is there's this big race to get the most powerful console out there that'll have the prettiest 4K picture with how many gigaflops of graphical processing power and things like that. The Nintendo Switch as it is right now puts out a 1080p picture. Some people would argue that that's lacking and it's 1080p max. Not all games will do that. And when undocked, puts out only 720p. So there has been a lot of questioning if there's going to be a pro version of the Switch come out, something similar to the PS4 Pro or the Xbox One X we saw come from Microsoft. So we're starting to get some answers on that, and we have seen some minor evolutions of the Switch as we get there. There's two new versions right now. There's the Switch Lite, which if you guys weren't aware, was basically a Switch that was stuck in handheld mode. They've got the Joy-Cons affixed to the screen. It's slightly smaller, and it is what, like 180 or 190 retail. And then they did put a second revision of the Switch out, which is literally the exact same console with a different processor that is more battery-efficient. I have upgraded to one of those and it makes a huge difference. I could play Zelda for about six hours without plugging in. So, there is something set up that shows they are going to make improvements, but neither of these improvements have come out yet are a Switch 2 or a fabled Switch Pro. However, there is a loan report coming from the Korean media says a Switch Pro might not even be deserving of the name Pro. What does that mean? Well, the report claims that Nintendo and Nvidia are working together on a new custom chip to improve the performance on the next Switch console. But here's the odd thing, that chip might not support 4K output as hoped by many customers out there. It's a strange twist considering that the Tegra X1 inside the current Switch is technically capable of 4K output, because it's the same thing that we see in Nvidia's Android TV Shield devices. Now, that being said, the Switch does do a lot more processing to run those games at 720p or 1080p in TV mode. So the custom chip is supposedly going to provide even more power for rendering those graphics quickly and cleanly, but not enough to support 4K. And and here's the other kicker. Supposedly, development has slowed down. They're having issues, and it's not even projected to ship on time right now. So my question is, if they can't hit the holiday season, they probably don't want to put it out. But. Better yet, if all it's going to do is potentially buy me slightly more battery life and quicker load speeds and maybe slightly better graphics, is it really worth it if you put out a pro Switch console that is more expensive than the current gen ones? I'm kind of struggling to figure out what Nintendo's doing here. And I've done that before. Remember, I didn't think the Switch was going to mount to anything at first until I actually saw it in action and changed my mind. But I don't understand what Nintendo's doing here with the rumored Switch Pro.
0: Yeah, it seems very interesting given the rumors on this. The only thing that I can assume is that the price tag rumor is wrong. It's going to be cheaper than the light version or whatever they call it now. And the whole name was lost in translation and they forgot an O. So it's not the Pro, it's the Poor. So the Nintendo Switch Poor. That's that's what I'm going to assume here. <laughs> SP, you're shaking your head.
1: I just think there's a lot, there's a lot of more people that own one now, especially after the last holiday season than I thought. And a lot of people just love to take it to different places. Like if you're doing a watch party for a TV show, you go there and then you, a lot of people are playing their phones, but a lot of people are playing their switch when they're doing, it, especially if you're there because your friend is there is significant. other is there because they're really into the show or the event or whatever. And so you can go ahead and play away. I didn't, know in this day and age of mobile devices with tablets and smartphones that this sort of thing was going to take off the way it did. It did. And I think just like the incremental advances on the main consoles, like the Xbox S and PlayStation four plus, I think it was, I don't know what the PlayStation went to. I think you're just going to find this and it's a way to keep relevant for a little while longer before they release the next generation of stuff.
0: By the way, at Geeks.Live, I am running a poll and the question is, how many Nintendo Switch models should be on the market? And I gave the options of one, two, three, or four plus. And as it currently stands, we've got 67% saying four plus and <laughs> 33% saying do. So the, the internet wants confusion and <laughs> as many Switch models as you can.
3: it fascinates me though because one thing i forgot to bring up is the switch has been on the market since what 2017 yeah it's not like the xbox or the playstation is what 2012 so it sort of makes sense they would have these iterative updates they don't really need to push out an iterative update at this point in time so my guess if i had to guess is they're starting to do some research on what to do and this report kind of went down the wrong path of a prototype they're looking at that's probably not coming anytime soon
0: I think two Switch models is a good number, uh, you know, like they have now. Something that's a little little less feature heavy, something that is the full-fledged version. And I think that just makes makes a lot of sense. Um, before we go on to the next news point here, I also had asked a poll about uh, whether or not people would be more likely to stay at a geek-themed hotel. And it was a split 50-50 between the yes and the no, and it was bouncing back and forth quite a bit. So... The world is divided. I think that would all come down to, of course, the price and um, the experience you want. Because, like, if you are just going somewhere and most of the event or the fun or whatever is in a park or whatever, then maybe you're okay to disconnect from. It's a small world when you go back to the hotel or something, right?
3: You know. <laughs> I, think, I think the other question would be, who are you traveling with? Exactly. If you're traveling by yourself, you might yeah. not care as much. If you're traveling with your kids who like to play games, you might be like, oh, this would be awesome for my kids, too.
0: Yeah. All right, let's go to the next news point here. Uh, We had an update about the abort test, was it? Or the abort process? The abort procedure? Something happened, Sp. What happened?
1: Yeah, we aborted the podcast last week and (laughs) I'm reporting.
0: There's quite quite that news point you've got there. Can I do the after show where we talk about your news point about how we canceled last week's podcast?
1: That'd be great. Actually, it worked out in my favor because this is the story that I wanted to cover last week. Unfortunately, we wasn't going to be able to talk about because it didn't happen. It was aborted just like this podcast. What did end up happening, though, in the past week, I believe the next day really, is that SpaceX Crew Dragon abort test went off and it was picture perfect, according to Elon Musk. So I got this from an article from Space.com. It was written by Amy Thompson, but it has been reported many, many places. This is something we talked about the last podcast that we were on, and we are looking forward to actually getting a U.S crew capsule up to the ISS hopefully later on this year. Here's what happened by the numbers. SpaceX's high altitude test of its Crew Dragon launch escape system on Sunday morning, January 19, 2020, appears to have been a picture perfect mission according to company founder and CEO Elon Musk. The flight test had tested the emergency escape system on the company's new astronaut taxi. That's what we're calling it now, I guess. Astronaut taxi, the Crew Dragon capsule with SpaceX sacrificing one of its Falcon 9 rockets in the process. Yes, they sacrificed a Falcon 9 rocket. We'll get in more into that in a second.
0: And so did they bring in Constantine for the sacrifice? Was it that sort of
1: sacrifice or what was it? poured a little salt in a circle. And then, yeah, that's what we'll kind of sacrifice it was. <laughs> <laughs> so on Sunday, the Falcon 9, with a thrice-flown first stage, sat perched on its launch pad at Kennedy Space Center's historic pad 39A, that is the same launch pad that went to the moon and launched space shuttle. Eighty-four seconds after liftoff, the capsule's abort system was triggered, talk about triggered, and the craft pushed itself away from its launch. It's not really pushed. rocketed away is really what happened. The Falcon nine rocket exploded in a brilliant fireball soon after. I wish I would have seen it breaking apart due to increasing aerodynamic forces. The peak velocity of the dragon during the abort was more than double the speed of sound. It went to Mach 2.2, not bad actually. And it achieved an altitude of 40 kilometers or 131,000 feet. Musk explained during the briefing. And Chris, I have to ask you, when's the last time you flew at a cruising altitude of one hundred and thirty-one thousand feet?
3: Well, when I went to go visit Suncast at Mars last week when the show yeah, okay. got canceled,
1: I got to fly pretty high before we went to warp speed. So Steven, when's the last time you took a commercial airliner <laughs> at one hundred and thirty one thousand feet?
0: Uh last Monday at about eight forty five in the evening. That's when it was.
1: Do either of you two have a clue at what the normal cruising altitude of a commercial airliner is?
0: Obviously, 375,000 feet.
1: Yeah. It is, <laughs> <laughs> it's somewhere between 20 and 35,000 feet, guys. It, so this is way, way up there. Quote the, quote, the booster actually exploded as expected so that it was so very exciting, he said. And it, meaning the Crew Dragon, landed in relatively high winds at ocean level, which I think helped us envelope the mission for when it is crude. unquote. So Elon Musk is saying that the adverse conditions during the test actually helped them see how far they could push the recovery system, which is a good test to actually happen if you are marginal on your launch tolerances.
0: You see, the problem is you said you assumed when you asked me about a commercial flight and when I had been, you assumed that I didn't go on Elon Musk's commercial flight that he saves for for only certain people. And since you know that he does or has visited, you know, within a couple kilometers away from me, uh, you just didn't realize that we are BFFs and I get to go on that flight. So there you go.
1: So Musk also noted that the Crew Dragon <laughs> could conduct an escape at any point during the mission, right up until the craft reaches orbit, a feature the space shuttle did not have. That's an important note, is yeah. that the rescue abort system is actually more functional than it was on the space shuttle. So after review of the data, SpaceX hopes that NASA will clear Crew Dragon to carry humans once that happens. Demo 2, which is the mission to the International Space Station, can get off the ground, Musk said that could happen in the next couple of months. Musk said that the hardware needed to fly that first crewed mission will be ready by the end of February. Right now, NASA and SpaceX are trying to nail down the details of that first mission. It won't happen until the data is hard crunched. But this is where SpaceX is now ahead of Boeing. Boeing with their Starliner had already done their recovery system test and pass but then they failed some other tests so they are in the point of being able to go to the ISS first at this juncture
0: all right so that's a good uh segue to the poll that i asked uh which was are you feeling more confident or less confident in spacex than you were two years ago And it was split uh, across the board. Uh, Well, as it switched suddenly, Uh, we had 50%. (laughs) Someone just voted. We had 50%. I love our audience. (laughs) 50% said more confident, 25% said uh, less confident, and 25% said about the same. And uh, I have to say, personally, um, you know, I've obviously made jokes, low hanging fruit jokes here and there about SpaceX and the challenges that they've had, and, you know, all of these other things. But I have to say, out of everything that we've read about to do with modern space development, I feel the most confident in SpaceX because of situations like this going pretty much as anticipated and sort of the steps that they're they're willing to do throughout all of the different phases. However, I do also have a little bit of me that's reserved for the conspiracy theory saying why is it that they always keep themselves quiet when things go wrong? And, uh, And they're very, very tight-lipped when things do go wrong.
3: So I would tend to agree with you, Stephen, that I am more confident as well. And touching on your point of how they go quiet when things go wrong, I think a lot of why people read more success into it is because just like with Tesla, their marketing plan on how they go about publicizing the launches, how they go about live streaming and tweeting everything about it, trying to put as much content out there as possible anytime there's a launch, I think does a lot to drive interest and get people seeing what progress is being made. And I think because they put so much out when that happens, some people kind of don't notice as much when they go quiet for a little bit. because like, oh, they're not telling us anything right now. They'll be telling us more later. So I'm not saying they're not successful, but I wonder how much that public interpretation of their success comes from the fact that they put it out there as much as possible versus what you would get from like Blue Origin or the Boeing side of the house where I don't see constant tweets about, here's what's going on with these guys, constant YouTube videos of people diagnosing what's going on or doing their own commentary on the launches. So I think a lot of it is their marketing is fantastic and does a good job of shaping public opinion as well.
0: I'd agree with that 100%.
1: I think Elon wants to show a very positive picture about what's going on, but he realizes that as long as he sets expectations like he did with the Starliner, the, the, excuse me, the spaceship announcement that he did, he said, well, if everything goes okay, we can have one of these ready to go in like eight months or whatever he said. And I think he is, leaving enough leeway to say there might be something that happens that goes wrong, and he's the first to say that space travel is dangerous we're trying to make it as routine as possible but it is dangerous and you have to solve for those safety tolerances one of the great things about spacex i don't think boeing was prepared to do is they actually sacrificed a booster to make this test happen that's a lot of money. That's a lot of capital. Now it was a booster that was flown three times before. So this was like, okay, can this thing get up a fourth time? And it did. So that was cool. And then they were, you know, lost it because, well, they're only designed to go so far, especially the early ones, the early models, the early marks, the early versions, they were only designed for so many launches versus the later ones. They're designed to have, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 launches.
3: Which makes it smart they test it that way. What are they going to do with it otherwise? Put it on display somewhere?
1: You know, I
0: as I sit here over the last couple minutes thinking about what you just said with um, the PR and the marketing and the hype and things like that, Chris, um, I think it's really interesting to think about the concept that maybe someone has made that decision with the other companies that they're not looking in for that public buyout. Now, what does that say about the company? I don't know. that or a public buy-in where they're not looking to have all of this hype and all of this cool factor that SpaceX is. And to me, I'm kind of like, well, don't you think you'd want to have the world supporting your product a little bit and and really getting behind it? But obviously, the other companies have have felt that the hype train is not the train they want to be on.
3: It's a double-edged sword, though. You get all this excitement, and you're constantly publicizing these things, and when something goes catastrophically wrong, that's a lot of eyes on it still, too. I I mean, I'm not knocking their plan for how they use the media and their own social media grace to hype up everything that's going on, because it's legitimately exciting. But it's also dangerous from their perspective that if something goes catastrophically wrong, it's being covered by hundreds of people. It's being streamed all across the world. And then everyone starts going, oh my God, what just happened with product XYZ? Oh no, it's all screwed. And they've got a media nightmare on their hands. So I think it's an interesting concept what they're doing, because growing up, I was fascinated with space, wanted to be an astronaut. We all went through that phase, I'm sure. But it's really cool to see how much they put out there in today's world.
1: So Boeing's been around space travel for a while. They were involved in actually maintaining the space shuttle fleet and launching the space shuttle fleet as a contract vehicle behind it. They also have, so they've been involved in some high visibility failures with the space systems. They also had MH370, which was a 777, a Boeing 777, and also, oh wait, the 737 MAX, issue that they've been having. So it's three high profile failures. I think Boeing as a company has modified itself over the years for self preservation. And they just, they just need to do that at this point. And whereas Elon Musk, he's like, I don't care about self preservation. I just want to go and have success. And I want to push the limits of everything. And I'm going to have some failures along the way, but it is going to be what it is going to be.
0: Fair enough. Well, moving on to our extra extra here. We just had a couple of other points that we wanted to quickly touch on here. Uh, First off, let's talk briefly about how there are Canadian scientists that are trying to dissolve tires. I wanted to mention this because I just came across this and I thought that was a really interesting thing. That there's researchers in McMaster University that are looking to solve the tire problem. If you didn't know this, tires are a big problem ecologically because of the fact that they're meant to be a one-time use product, and there's no real good way to get rid of them other than just some of the chopping up methods where a certain small percentage of them become mulch or become playground, whatever, you know. the, The majority of them are dumped, and the reason why this is a problem is because there are such chemical compounds in there that are meant so that your tire doesn't fall apart as you drive across all of these horrible things that are on the road. And so it's really hard to take care of these. And apparently, they have found a technique to help dissolve car tires so that they can then recycle the rubber. Now, this is really in its infancy. It's definitely not ready for mainstream use, but it was just something that I I thought was kind of a neat little scientific development. And we haven't heard a lot about sort of development with like tire problems and tires have been a problem forever. Think back, Chris. I know, I know you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Early episodes of The Simpsons, tire fire, right? Like, you know, and, Springfield and, tire exactly. fire. This has been a known problem for, for decades and we've gotten nowhere. And so I just thought it was interesting.
1: Fascinating. Yeah, there was a tire fire that started up in our area, our neck of the woods here this past year, and it's going to burn for a while. And I believe Houston had a huge tire fire set off earlier this year. Either that or it was a refinement fire. I can't remember which, but I thought it was a tire fire. Those things last literally for decades, and it's very toxic. And if there's a way to recycle tires, let's recycle the tires. And I'm not talking about just making the playground little rubber things that might or might not be toxic for kids i'm talking about actually reusing it just like you would reuse plastics and stuff because i don't know if it's as much as an endangered commodity as oil is but if there's something that we could do with it versus just letting it sit there for a while like nuclear waste then let's do something with it
0: let's go on to the next extra extra point here which Chris, you had something interesting that you wanted to bring about because I know you're all about the awards and you live this season. uh, When it is award season, it's all that SP and I hear in our group chat with Chris. Seriously, he's sending us links hourly about who's going to be possibly winning the next whatever award. And then when the awards happen, it's video clips endlessly for days. So, Chris, go ahead.
3: I'm all about the podcast awards. Uh, congratulations, Cody, and congratulations to us for winning best show on Gunna Geek. with going to the Gunna Geek stuff. No, but in all seriousness, though, it should surprise no one. John Williams won yet another Grammy, his 25th for Star Wars. But here's the twist. It wasn't for what he did in Star Wars Rise of Skywalker or anything like that. It's for what he composed for Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, which is a theme park. Yes, he did win a theme for what is called the Galaxy's Edge Symphonic Suite, inspired by the Star Wars Galaxy Edge's theme park. It's different music than you would hear in the movies because it's more like the music you would hear if you lived in the world of Star Wars, not if you were watching the movies or TV shows. So unless you've been to Galaxy's Edge, you probably haven't heard much of the music because they've only sprinkled a little bit in their advertising for Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run or Star Wars Rise of the Resistance. So I just thought it was fascinating that he won a Grammy Award for his Star Wars composition for a theme park, not for the movies or any of the TV shows. It's it's cool to me.
0: I agree. I think that I I actually hadn't heard about this until you posted this in our document. And it's cool. Uh, It also goes to show that uh, Chris Farrell is responsible for uh, all sorts of awards because of the fact that he has been a very, very big advocate for Galaxy's Edge. And so uh, this is all you're doing, Chris. Pat yourself on the back.
3: Well, I mean, I wish I could take credit, but there are people out there that are far more... Uh, doing, I don't know how to phrase this correctly, that have done far more for Star Wars Galaxy Edge than me talking about it occasionally on the GunnaGeek.com show.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, in our extra extra here, let's just quickly talk about how Microsoft Windows 7 just can't go away. If you didn't know this, Microsoft creates problems for themselves all the time. And that's what they did. They created a problem with themselves as they ended Windows 7. So the long story short is, (laughs) as we mentioned, Windows 7 was end of life, meaning that uh, unless you were paying for support like a corporation, you no longer got Windows 7 updates. This was as of I think it was last month, wasn't it, Chris? Or this month? Was it this month? This month, I believe, was the last uh, update. Right. So it came out and they did the last set of patches. Well, Obviously, they're going to do a little bit of patches before they do that. And then it was end of life, deemed end of life, meaning no more free updates for you. Well, apparently, quote, after installing KB4534310, your desktop wallpaper might display as black when it's set to stretch. That's from Microsoft themselves. So apparently they broke the wallpaper of all things, the most basic part of Windows. They broke the wallpaper in their final update. And yes, they did, of course, turn around and provide the patch to people for free, even though it was end of life. They did go and they they did put out that patch. I just had to mention it because of the fact that they screwed up the last set of patches.
1: (laughs) Didn't they say that they might on their own, go ahead and release patches in the future, but don't. You, we're not going to depend on it anymore. I think that's what the end of life really was because they knew that there was a lot of people out there that will be continuing to use Windows 7 machines either for developmental purposes or whatever, and so they just didn't want them to be completely out, but they do want to give people Windows... And if you have Windows 7, you can get Windows 10 for free.
0: Well, allegedly... Right? Allegedly, Microsoft originally said that this Windows 7 fix, this was when they were developing it, that when they were developing the Windows 7 fix, that it would only be available, quote, for organizations who have purchased Windows 7 extended security updates, Mm. end quote. So that, to me, tells me where their mindset is with it. Now, obviously, they've, they've changed their mind because of the stupidity of that.
3: When your final patch breaks something before you go to a charged model for premium support, I don't think you have much of a choice other than to be like, okay, we're going to get this fix out there. And like SP mentioned, they kind of left the door open for it. Similar to what we saw with Windows XP, where when there were some terrible exploits that came out, Microsoft went, man, there's a lot of machines still running Windows XP. And we don't want the bad press for somebody creating a botnet out of all these machines. Let's just put a patch out. And it seemed to be the smart move.
0: So what you're saying is if you like it, then you should have put a patch on it. Is that what you're saying?
3: Well, I mean, if it's end of life, you should have put the last patch on it is what I'm saying. Ah, Fair enough.
1: Steven, I want to see a video of you doing a spoof of that song with those lyrics.
0: Yes. I can't do it. can't do it. (laughs) Uh, Let's go ahead and move on to our segment this week. Here we go. So in the past, I have talked a little bit about some of my smart home endeavors. This is a a tree that I've decided to bark up because of none other than Chris Farrell. I will every day of the week give him the credit because he started with smart home stuff and he's like, look what I can do. And I'm like, I want to do that. Just like most things in my life with Chris Farrell. And so I started to do some smart home stuff. Well, if you didn't catch this, originally I started to do a lot around the wink platform. The wink platform is a f- it's junk now. It's garbage. I was gonna say poo-poo, pull a JS reference there. And it's really not good anymore. So I had to move off of that. Well, I decided to switch to smart things, and then after being provided a hubitat elevation hub for review. I did that review on here. I decided that I actually wanted to go that way a little bit more. And it's been encouraging me to do all sorts of tinkering because the habitat has a little bit more uh, flexibility than smart things. And so my whole smart home has kind of evolved quite a bit over the last little while. And I thought since it's been a while since I've talked about this, it was time to do a little bit of an update of some of the changes that I've made in my smart home. And as I go through this, I'll encourage Chris and SB to ask questions. uh, Tell me that I'm insane and just tell me to stop talking. Any of those, if they'd like.
3: How about all of those? That works. That absolutely works. Steven, you're insane. Stop talking. Why do you keep talking to us? I think I
0: hit all the words right (laughs) there. Perfect. Go ahead and (laughs) try to figure out how to get behind SB's frame. (laughs) People who aren't watching live don't get that. Uh, Let's start off with some of the major changes that I've done with my smart home system the first thing that i did was some smart thermostats i've explained in the past that i had a desire to put smart thermostats in but i do have baseboard heating that means there's one thermostat per room some rooms having multiple and this can become very very expensive if you want to put a smart thermostat on every room well last year i did a bit of a review on the misa smart therm thermostats i had two of them and honestly they were pretty good but uh, in December, I actually moved on from using Misa because I'm cheap. SP, you can attest to how cheap I am, right?
1: Oh, you're one of the cheapest podcasters I know.
0: <laughs> are,
3: are you just channeling Jar Jar Banks? Misa smart home? <laughs> user?
0: Exactly. Exactly. So I moved on from the Misa to one that is made by a company called Snow Pay. Uh, I think they're French Canadian. And the reason why I did that was because that company has smart thermostats and they're in the process of changing their infrastructure. They currently had a proprietary sort of wireless backhaul with a specific gateway device that you needed, but they're switching so that they're using a standard platform, the Zigbee technology. And as such, they were doing some clearance of their products, which they have come out and said, while we're migrating, we will continue to support these Boy, there's no problem. There's no technical limitations. It's just we want to get to this standard platform. And when they were doing this clear out, there was also in my province a significant rebate, which made it so that they almost equated to just barely above a regular dumb thermostat. And for me, I've been in my house for a while. Some of my thermostats are garbage. I'm spending tons of money because of the fact that they're contractor grade. They're, you know, 10 plus years old and they're really inaccurate now. So I was going to have to go around and replace several of these anyways. And the price that I got where it worked out, they ended up, like I said, being not much more than a regular dumb thermostat. So I took advantage of that. And because they were so discounted, and even though they don't compare, and I'll probably do a full review later, even though they don't fully compare to the Mesa smart thermostats, I did indeed decide to go through and uh, replace a whole bunch in my house. So I ordered a whole bunch of them and installed them all throughout my house in December and maybe, you know, just this past week. Uh, how how many it. were they in all, Stephen? Uh, how many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. No, nine, nine, nine.
3: So a spare then?
0: I have, I have a spare, yes. I have a spare. Okay. I yeah, like the toe
1: that he cut off before.
0: Yeah. Sorry, what'd you say?
1: Unlike the toe that you cut off before that you're having problems (laughs) counting without.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I do have a a spare one. And I'm wanted. i glad you mentioned that because I did want to actually mention that on here was the fact that because it is technology that will be going away, I did make sure to buy a spare one. And also a couple of my rooms don't get used very often. So it wouldn't be the end of the world if I had to go and pull one out of those. And what I really like about that is the fact that uh I can see the the temperatures of course in all of my rooms now I can see them independently and see whether they're running and the ones that aren't running seeing if it's getting cold and if I want to go ahead and consider uh putting on the heat in certain rooms like for example I've got a uh, bathroom that's kind of in the middle of my house I rarely ever have to run the heat but I always thought like am, am i doing myself a disservice is that dropping down in the middle of the night or whatever but I can go in and I can see because it's in the middle of my room, it's getting all of this heat elsewhere. There's really it would never be running. And it mm-hmm. was a nice side benefit by putting that in there. I can go back and I can check. So it, I, you know, it's kind of a nice side side benefit to having that in. And uh, we had a big cold snap over the last little bit. And I have to say, I, I think that I probably saved a good chunk of hydro money because of the fact that I had these in a couple key rooms and could adjust it uh, smartly and program in some smart, uh, you know, timings and things like that.
3: Does it so it's schedulable then, similar like yeah. the Nest remote and things like that? So you could say, hey, during the day, we're all at work. So there's no reason to heat all these rooms up to x temperature let's heat it to x minus y or something
0: like that uh-huh and that's one of the big savings that i think i've had is doing our bathroom because our bathroom mm. has a window outside and you don't want a cold tushy at night so you got to have the heat up a little bit but also uh because of that we de- generally were running that heat all the time
3: well, i mean a cold tushy means you'll get out of the bathroom faster and <laughs> back to your warm beds so there's something to be said for that <laughs>
0: Fair enough. If I could go, like, honestly, if I wasn't being cheap, I'd go with the Misa any day uh, because I do think that the interface is a little bit better. But who knows? Maybe this will get better. But let's go to that core, core piece of the other smart stuff that I'm going to talk about today because that's sort of adjacent. It doesn't really work in with the rest of my smart stuff. It's kind of independent, but it was worth the mention. Uh, It's Hubitat. The fact that I switched to Hubitat after doing that review I decided I wanted to tinker a little bit more. It was like all the stress of the review was off me. And I thought, okay, let's go back to this and see because it is complex. I mentioned that in the review. And I've just loved the continuing to tinker with the programming and the real flexibility of the Hubitat. And that's more up my alley. So I have using my smart things in a capacity I'll tell you about in a bit, but it's really weird. But most of my stuff I've migrated over to the Hubitat itself. And the Hubitat is the central brain that controls my smart lights or my smart switches and and all that other stuff. Now, the first thing that I want to talk about right now is my kitchen lights. Uh, In the past on the show, I did a whole review about my big Wink setup. And one of the things I had in there was controlling my two banks of lights in my kitchen. I had a Wink relay, essentially a touchscreen panel that also controls two independent circuits on your lights. And unfortunately, with Wink going so bad, I, I had to move on from that. And it was a bit of a challenge because of the fact that the Wink Relay, if you've not put in a smart switch, you don't know that a lot of times if your house is done annoyingly, you have space issues as you try to put in these smart switches. And that was the nice thing about the Wink Relay, was it only took up one of a two-gang switch even though it was covering both. When I went to go put in uh, two independent switches, that was quite the problem. But I had to do that because I had to get rid of, rid of the Wink relay. And so I put in two independent smart switches. Now, I'm going to say, I went through a couple different smart switches. I had problems with a couple different ones, one of which was the Leviton smart switch. They would randomly lock up on me. It was quite a pain to find ones that worked well. And I just wanted to give a shout out there because I tried putting the money into the Leviton brand and I Googled and it was a known problem. And there was no real good firmware fit fix. And some people had it. Some people didn't. So I had to move on. And the ones I landed on were some ones called Inavelli Dimmers. They're the version two of the Red series. And I wanted to have dimming lights in the kitchen so that I could dim them when I get up before the rest of the family, things like that. And one of the really cool things about the Inavelli uh, switches is they actually have a little LED on the side that is multicolor, So you can go and you can set it to whatever color you want. And it also, of course, shows the level of dim when you are, you know, turning on the lights and they're fading on or fading off. But you can program that LED to do whatever you want. And so when you go and uh, like, let's say I wanted it to turn red when my garage door was left open, I could do that. Or I wanted it to to flash when there was another problem going on in the house, like all of a sudden the kid's door opened or whatever, you know. I could go and I can program that because the hubs see that as just an independent multicolored light. So however you can think to program, you can think to program and Hubitat's really flexible with this because the programming and the sort of uh, robots or the if capability is really strong in Hubitat and very flexible. And one of the ways that I've gone and I've done that is where I have motion on my kitchen. And so when the lights uh, shut off automatically because they're set to shut off after like five minutes of inactivity when they go to shut off a minute before they actually start flashing yellow so if you're nearby and for some reason it's not picked up your motion like you've been super still as you've been sitting there or whatever or on your phone you might catch that out the corner of your eye and so I I have actually had that happen a couple of times where I've just seen that and I've just kind of you know moved my hand a little bit and then it re-triggers it and then it knows there's motion but speaking of the motion, in order to do this, how I, I did this was I got a Samsung Smart Things motion sensor. Uh, it was really inexpensive, like a pretty reasonable price for what they are. And I put that on the side of my fridge because you walk into my kitchen and you walk past the fridge. And because it's got a magnetic back, I just stuck it on the side of my fridge. So when you walk in and you walk past, the lights come on automatically because I have smart switches on the kitchen. And The challenge that I ran in with this was I have animals, I have a dog, I have some cats, and you don't really want them setting off the lights. Keeping in mind, a motion sensor is supposed to pick up a whole bunch of different space up, down, side to side, supposed to pick up a whole bunch of stuff. So the way that I solved that was, was honestly just poor man's way of doing it. And I could make it a little bit better. But I used masking tape where all I did was I put a piece of masking tape over the one side that I didn't want it to pick up and the bottom side so that essentially the field of view that it was picking up was uh, being masked so that uh, Hmm. you didn't have to worry about uh, the lower level, the dog, setting it off. So the,
3: the motion sensor is 360 degree on that sensor then?
0: Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. Because
3: like when I, when I installed the stuff for my house alarm, they said if you're worried about your pet setting it up, install it upside down because it doesn't have like an angled view about like that. Instead, it kind of angles it like... That, that's not a great description for those that are listening on audio. Uh,
0: I did my hand angled downward
3: and <laughs> angled upward for my second comparison.
0: I didn't see that. I, I tried flipping it around. Um, My kids have flipped it upside down and, uh, and it's been, <laughs> it's still gone off. So I think it's the full okay. view, but I, I could be wrong. I guess I should look into that more, but that was the way I solved it. And it seems to work well.
3: Oh, makes sense. <laughs>
0: Uh, The other thing that I also have done is along the line of motion is in my garage. uh, I've got some smart bulbs in there. And rather than having to do smart switches, uh, because they can be kind of expensive and it's three-way setup and all this stuff. I went and I got some super cheap bulbs that were uh, available for just plugging into my garage lights inside my garage. So when I go to take the dog out, I have a motion sensor in there. And what ends up happening is the lights come on. And then again, after so many minutes of inactivity, they go off and it works really, really well because the switch placement in that garage is sort of behind a shelf, just the way we've got some shelving. It's not ideal. And also benefit is usually I send my dog ahead of me, so she triggers it. So by the time I even step in, it's completely on. It's great. It's fantastic. And I also got a little bit uh, Christmassy because the bulbs that I got, dirt cheap, were actually color changing. I I came into a real big clearance. And what I did was usually rest of the year, the way I have it, you walk in, lights come on, a few minutes in activity, lights go off. Well, I changed that over Christmas because of course I'm obsessed with Christmas lights. Chris has said that many times where I ended up having it so that when the lights went off, they actually came back on as Christmas colors. So uh, half the garage was red. Half of it was green and then, you know, just some other things where they automatically went off at 11 o'clock at night. I actually tried to get a video of it um, and go in, but, but I was too lazy to get my tripod because I, I couldn't stand still enough and it kept picking up my motion. But uh, yeah, it was kind of a neat little thing to have over Christmas and just add a little bit more to that sort of smart thing, which is, which is just a little more fun. Now, here's where I used my smart things hub. In the past, I mentioned that I have some yards in the backyard and I have a suite that my in-laws do rent. And one of the things that I like to do is make sure that they have access to turning on the pathway lights, the backyard lights, things like that, if they have to take their animal out or whatever. And one thing that Wink did really well that Hubitat and smart things don't do well or don't do is user sharing of devices. The way that Wink worked, you could go in and you could share specific devices with certain people. So I had Chris go and he shared with me all of his individual lights for his bedroom so I could go and just in the middle of the night turn them into red. But I had no no access to the stuff outside of his bedroom because he didn't share that with me. So so that's what I was able to do with Wink was I was able to go to those pathway lights and share that specifically with my in-laws. Well, with Samsung, SmartThings, it's an all or nothing setup. You give all access or you give none. And it's the same thing with Hubitat. All the workarounds tend to be that way as well. In fact, I would say that Sam's, that SmartThings actually edges out uh, Hubitat for shareability on that. But the way that I did that was I found that someone created for Hubitat a way to link your Hubitat with your SmartThings hub So I can go and I can share specific devices from the SmartThings hub to show up on Hubitat or reverse from Hubitat onto the SmartThings hub. And so I was able to do that where I have now given all access to my in-laws for my SmartThings hub. But on the Hubitat side of things, I said, okay, share these specific devices with SmartThings. So on SmartThings, they only see these devices. And they look like regular, you know, SmartThings lights and things like that, but it's actually just talking back to Hubitat. So a little bit of a janky way to do it, but it works. And I also get to continue to have my SmartThings hub set up and using it in a routine fashion. So if I want to go test something, I can go and test something on SmartThings because occasionally there might be something that I want to test. Like when I was having those light issues that I had, I uh, I mentioned to you, I actually went and I paired those to SmartThings to make sure it wasn't the Hubitat doing it. Now, one of the last things that I want to go and mention before I talk about a couple future considerations is I have gotten into using Wi-Fi devices. Now, I have been a big advocate of using Z-Wave and Zigbee. And what that is, is that's the wireless technology where you have a central hub and it controls those over that standard. So in our case here, what we had when all of a sudden Wink went bad, I went And most of my devices, I just switched it out to smart things. And then because I was using ZigBee and Z-Wave stuff, I was able to keep using that. I just had to switch out the brain. If I was, say, using, let's say I was using Philips Hue and Philips Hue went away, then I'm kind of SOL because their their products talk to Philips Hue. Last year, there was Lowe's products that went away in a whole sort of situation like that. So that's why I've been kind of against Wi-Fi, plus I have seen lags and things like that, because with Wi-Fi devices, generally, you are talking to a server, and if that server goes away, you're kind of sort of screwed, plus, again, lag. Well, here's the thing. I discovered something new. Actually, my brother told me about it with what he's doing, which is a little bit different than what I'm doing, but I can flash many Wi-Fi devices that are out there. There's a process where you can go and you can change the firmware that 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 uh, Wi-Fi device is using. It's not all of them, but it's a lot of them. And you can have it so it's running this local firmware talking on your local network. It gets rid of that server. It gets rid of that lag problem. It's all local. It's um, something that involves a Raspberry Pi. So I got to go and put the bulb or the plug into pairing mode or whatever and go through a couple steps on the Raspberry Pi and it creates this this weird sort of hotspot. It's a weird, weird process. I won't, I'll save you this, the details. But essentially what it does is it goes and it clears out that software that's running on that Wi-Fi device and it puts on this local running stuff. And I've, I've been pretty impressed with it actually because someone has made it so that it is workable with Hubitat. My brother uses uh, that uh, home assistant platform. And when I found that Hubitat did this, I thought this was uh, pretty interesting because some of that Wi-Fi stuff is a lot cheaper than the Zigbee and the Z-Wave. And what this has allowed me to do is do some areas in my house that were a good uh, enhancement to have, but I didn't really want to spend a ton of money on. For example, in my bathroom, my fan, I needed to replace the switch on there. It was actually, um, it was one of those timer switches, but the timer function hasn't worked in forever. And then over Christmas it, at Christmas, it actually just gave up altogether, so I had to put in a dumb regular switch. Well, I don't want that running all the time because of the fact that I do get up early before the family as well. You know, you go for a shower, you leave, and you got to leave your fan on or else you got too much humidity and there's all sorts of problems. So I had to replace that anyway. And to put a proper Zigbee or Z-Wave switch in there was a little bit more than I really wanted to spend. So I was able to go and find a really cheap, like I think it was like $19 or $20 or something Wi-Fi switch that I could flash. And now it's working on my local network with my Hubitat. And uh, it might as well be a Zigbee or z wave switch with the way that it works with Hubitat. Now, you do have to do a little bit of back end work as far as putting in a special what's called driver on Hubitat. But. It worked out for me, and uh, again, I didn't have to put too much money in there. I'm a little conscious about what you put in a bathroom because of, you know, the problem we talked about before with water. Willing to spend a little bit of money, as I mentioned before, but not wanting to spend too, too much money, uh, in there. But it does, uh, it it works well, and I've had really good success where I've gone and I have made it so that uh, it goes off after a certain amount of time on. As well, I'm in the process of working to put a actual. Uh, Motion sensor slash humidity detector combo so that there'll be all sorts of programming based on the humidity in there as well. I also have actually several outdoor Wi Fi switches that I purchased for my Christmas light setup this year. Uh, they of course you uh, did, I know, right? And and they're outdoor modules and uh, they were Wi Fi and this was before I knew I could flash them. Well, I have since determined that I can flash them and make them work locally so. I'm going to go and do all of that. So they're running on my local network, and I can get these crappy Christmas outdoor uh, Wi Fi outlets out of the cloud and get them local. So, those are kind of the big changes that I've made in my setup this year. I've got a few other things planned in the future. A lot of it's going to be revolving around my security system. Right now, I have an independent security system that's you know, it's it's online, but it's not connected to like one of those security monitoring companies or whatever. Well, its reliability has not been that great with the iPhone app, and so uh, Hubitat actually has a built-in security feature, and so I think I'm going to work towards using that. Where I'll just go and replace some of the contact sensors on the doors with smart ones, and then the bonus of that is it's only one set of equipment versus two. Right now, if I have motion sensors, I have to have motion sensors. the security system, but also motion sensors for my smart stuff. So if it's all built into one, which, by the way, I should mention, SmartThings does also have a security systems feature in there as well. But if it's all with one, then it's less hardware. I don't have to have two contact sensors on certain doors or two motion sensors in one room. And I also really like the fact that uh, I'm going to probably use your guys' voice because I did find out that you can have it so that when it's arming or disarming or the alarm's going off, you can have custom sounds or music or whatever. So obviously, I'll have to have you guys being like, "Get out of Steven's house! A satellite is about to crash. Get out of Steven's house! The house will be destroyed in thirty minutes." That sort of thing. Can you,
3: can you just put Schwarzenegger? Get to the
1: chop
0: up? <laughs> Actually, one little thing that I note want to note about that, uh, I found that Habitat playing those audio pieces. Uh, Yeah, it looks like you can work by using the Amazon speakers, but they actually are very complex to get them working with the Amazon speakers. Like if I wanted to have that playing the voice, but they actually apparently work very, very easy. And I've confirmed this. I've tried it with the Google Home uh, Minis. And that's because they have Google Home Minis have that Chromecast audio codec or whatever in there. And that's essentially what it's using. And it was really easy to set up. So. I have a few of those, a couple of those kicking around that I've gotten from like a free Spotify offer or whatever here and there. And I don't like the Google Home Minis. I've I've said that many, many times, but now I got a use, I'll shove them behind, I don't know, a TV or something, and they'll be my, an extension of my alarm system or something. I'm not sure. So Steven, you've
3: got all these plans and done these enhancements. Can you control your TV by voice completely still?
0: Mm, I don't think so. No, I don't think my cable box works well with it. <laughs> oh, we found the next generation.
3: There you go. Of what he's going to do.
0: So that's kind, kind of where I'm at with my setup. Uh, either you got any comments or questions on that?
1: There was a comment in the chat that I want to go over. Kent asked what your electric bill is. And I will say that with all the LED lights that are inherently Uh, controlled by smart devices and smart things or Hubitat or whatever, the LED alone saves you so much money that your electric bill actually is a lot less than it would have been five years ago. So all of this smart innovation is ultimately saving you money. That said, you are still getting some electricity into the smart switches that you're using Whether they're the plug-in switch that you were holding up that was the outdoor switch, I have one like that too, not one that you have. Or whether it's in the in-wall, you have constant power going to them as long as they're powered up. So that is a little bit more power. Anyway, my point is the actual electrical consumption, which I am kind of big on after watching all these sailing YouTube channels because they're all about trying to monitor and mitigate the electrical consumption And by far, by the way, YouTube sailors consume more electricity than anybody else because they're always editing and they have all this camera gear and everything that they're using. By far, YouTubers are the worst violators of electrical use on boats, and they're doing just fine with all the LED stuff. Yeah,
3: LEDs make a big difference, like SP was saying. I fall down the YouTube rabbit hole, so one of those rabbit holes one time was people who build their custom vans to live in because they wanna live off the grid or go around how they'll put solar on the roof. And they all put LED lights inside because they're easy to control, because they can get smart solutions or remote controlled ones, and because they use little power. And what they mention in there is the stuff that uses the most power is my laptop or my TV or something like that. And like SP mentioned, they've mentioned that doing video rendering on their MacBook or whatever, it's power intensive. So a lot of these guys go to like Starbucks and plug in there and they'll do their video editing while they get a couple cups of coffee and then go back out to their van and finish up any of the remnants of stuff. It, it's really fascinating to see how this world where people are living with power constraints, be it in sailing or living the van life, stuff like that, have found workarounds and ways to put power efficient lighting in place.
0: Yeah. And and I have to say, like, as far as actually electrical saving, like electricity savings go. I think the uh, thermostats will pay for themselves for sure because, again, I had to keeping in mind I had to replace several already. That was that was a must. Like that was something on my list from last year, and I was always hoping for the deal that I got, which is why I put it off. But I think they will pay for themselves because of the fact that I've seen the savings happen when I put them in, and I've seen the way they're running less and just sort of charted the electrical, the lighting itself. I think SP nailed it. LED lighting is very, very efficient. But I do also have kids that leave things on all the time, and um, I think the bathroom fan will also be a a big help because of the fact that we were leaving that on quite a bit. And it's a small space with a heater in it that is running a fan, pulling out the heat. Like you know, (laughs) so that it's as well. I think will Um, some of the other areas. It's it's more about convenience and geek factor and fun factor um the garage again the that that there is a big convenience thing and the bulbs they were cheap they're like 10 bucks a bulb so you know like they're, they're very minimal minimal cost there so you know i i i really do struggle i think it's a good question and i struggle to say people will save tons of money by putting in smart lighting but uh, if you get the right because once you factor in the hardware itself but if you get the right deal on the hardware I think it, you could if it's a right situation where people are leaving things going. Like I said, that bathroom fan, that, that is a really good example on, on a complete loss of money. Well, it's a good question. And uh, if you have any questions about any of this or you want to know what I'm planning, uh, let me know. But I just like to tinker. I like to have random geeky things going on. And uh, I like the fact that pretty soon that my security system is going to be like that episode of Home Improvement where it'll be me saying, the police are on the way, or whatever it was that Tim Allen said. You know, I'm going to, yeah, I'll just go and take Tim Allen's clip. That's what I'll do. I'll just go. You got to work on
3: your tool man grunting, though. Oh, oh.
0: You can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. Before we go, Chris or SB, do you have anything that you'd like to plug or promote, Chris?
3: Uh, a bunch of great content on the to Geek Network. Head on over to Geeks.live. If you're watching this video right now, you may be watching it there. You can scroll down to the bottom of the page. And see our calendar of live events, kind of an important slash interesting one coming up on Thursday, which I'm pretty sure SP was going to mention.
1: I was in three days. <laughs> we are going to be live recording the final episode of the Starling Tribune. That is because tomorrow it will be the final episode of Arrow, along with its uh, after show. And so we'll be covering that and discussing that on Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. It will be episode number 263 of Starling Tribune, the final episode.
0: Can't believe it's coming to an end. Uh, so sad, but I get why you're doing it. Uh, it's to break my heart. I understand that.
1: I do everything <laughs> for that reason. If we would have known it was going to break your heart, we would have done it a lot sooner. <laughs>
0: Then we wouldn't have to watch season five. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, for episode 318 of the official GunnaGeek.com show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying I have myself a keypad for my security system, but it's not installed. But there is a green light on it.
3: I don't even know how to respond to Stephen's lights. I'm Chris Merrill.
1: An MSP saying I need to go up to the ISS to make sure that we have LED lights installed. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> See ya.
2: Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.